and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is almost Dr. Elisa Farrow. Social scientist, consultant and facilitator, Elisa Farrow is the founder of About Your Transition, which is a business specialising in portfolio, program, project and change management consulting and facilitation. Her doctoral research explored organisational adaptation scenarios and implications as a result of artificial intelligence, and she framed it through anticipatory action learning. Elisa has previously held leadership positions with the Change Management Institute, as well as chair of DVC Connect, which is a service preventing domestic and family violence in Queensland, Australia. And she recently commenced being a volunteer surf lifesaver on North Stradbroke Island. Welcome to FuturePod, Elisa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to uh, our discussion. So, question one, the Elisa Farrow story. How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, it's a bit of an interesting, interesting story that is connected to connecting to the concept of giving back to myself. So I know that might sound a little bit strange, but um, I'd come across uh, futures and foresight work originally through my uh, work in the Queensland State Government where I worked for quite a number of years before I left to become a consultant and run my own business. And one of those opportunities I had while I was working for the Queensland State Government was to be part of a leadership program that Sahail Ainatula presented at. So that was my very first taste of futures, which probably would have been about probably about 15 years ago. So it was a long time ago and it sort of sparked the idea And then what I also um, had at the time uh, and still have, she's a very dear friend of mine, Jeannie was doing a doctorate where Sahal was her supervisor and Professor Jeannie Hoffman, as she now now is known, (laughs) (laughs) she, as a dear friend, was understanding that I was thinking of doing a doctorate at some point in time. And, And so back in 2017, she said, hey, you know, how's that thinking about the doctorate going? And, and I said, oh, you know, it's coming stronger in my mind. And I had at that time been working on a program of change with a, an organisation and I'd just been bullied in the workplace. And I really was not feeling too good about that. And I realised through that um, incident where this um, person wasn't dealing with their change process very well, that mm. I thought, if that people were still struggling with change, even if it was a simpler form of change, what, what, what about the future of work? And if artificial intelligence was becoming more and more prevalent within organisations and the change for simple change at the moment was handled poorly, what would be the adaptation implications? So Jeannie said, hey, so Hal's running a workshop 
with uh, Colin Russo down on the Gold Coast, why don't you go and um, go to this three-day futures immersion and then you'll know whether you like futures and whether or not you might want to think about it as your research methodology. So I went along and that sort of triggered it off um, for me, really. That um, period of time, I felt it was a sense of fun, of a sense of future. And because I'd just had a crappy time at work, I just went, actually, you know, this is about giving back to myself. Yeah. Yeah. The opportunity to really explore some concepts. And so my my whole last four years of the almost Dr. Farrow has been in an incredible opportunity of meeting futurists, understanding more about futurists and foresight, being challenged in my own thinking at the very heart of my my being. And I I yeah, that that's the sort of journey of how I got into it in the first place. And now I'm I'm sort of almost going to be graduate well, going to be graduating hopefully in early 2022. And then the the world's my oyster. So really excited about that. It sounds, again, your experience would be what I would describe as the chrysalis moment. Yes. Of many, many people, as I saw them in the classroom, both myself also when I was a student, this notion that to some extent we reinvent ourselves as a radical departure from the future that may have been expected maybe even what we expected for ourselves. Yes. And yet that process of liberation, it is a hugely powerful part of, I think, what draws people into the field. Yes, yes. I, I totally, that resonates with me in the chrysalis sort of metaphor is one that, that weirdly, you know, my um, logo for my, my business about your transition is a monarch bu- butterfly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, for me, that's the whole concept around transition and, and change and, and, and growth is, is about um, the fact that sometimes we need to bunker in for a little bit like the chrysalis concept and then before we can break, break free into a new reality. So, yeah, that really resonates with me. Change is an interesting one because we know that at a deep psychological level that people quite rightly are uncomfortable about change because change is dangerous. But at some level, one would imagine as a society, as people, we are getting better at managing change. But you're a professional in this space. Are we, in fact, as a kind of, you know, people as well as organisational people, are we... Are we getting better at this or are we actually struggling more as things become harder? I think that there are examples that I see where people are getting better at this and, and I see in organisations that I work with often the at least the, the consideration of people as part of the people impacts as part of the change process is, is you know, starting to become, you know, not just an afterthought, which is reassuring. It still, I know, <laughs> happens in happens in pockets. Um, societally, I think, um, with just even the in the time that I, uh, the last four years for me, um, just the amount of societal shifts and changes. It's been an incredible process where I, I see change being managed poorly, but I also see examples of community kindness and um, individual kindness that actually has been assisting whole groups of people to shift and change. But I still think that we've got a long way to go, but at least 
the conversations are being had now as opposed to previously, um, especially from an organisational change perspective, often they'd, they'd not fund the change process and just expect people to sort of suck up the change or, you know, you can deal with it as opposed to actually now thinking, well, you know, if we actually consider the human cost or the environmental cost of change, and then try to design a process that at least considers the impact of those to try and manage them in some way or, or mitigate them in terms of severe impacts, that that will only bring broader value to not only the organisation but to the, the people uh, and the communities which those organisations theoretically are ser- serving. Mm. Do you think our, I mean, you, you're only a nascent futurist at this particular point, but... <laughs> As a discipline, as a field, do you think that we ourselves effectively understand change both as a process and a way to support it? From a futurist's perspective, I think what I believe is that there's quite a, and what I've experienced through the range of different conferences that I have have attended and futurists that I've met, is that there's a lot of people who in the futures field come up with really cool ideas and plans for the future but don't necessarily know how to actively make them happen and and that was that was one of the elements for me because I'm I'm very much around activism and about participatory futures and about enabling the future but actually seeing it through so it's a blend of my my professional side and my now academic side so I I think that's what drew me to the concept of anticipatory action learning because for me it was like a like what the futures fields in some circumstances needs to have a real examination to make sure that that futures can be inspiring but but also there's a point when the inspiration needs to turn to some form of action and in some circumstances the the balance of futurists that I've met so far and again, like it's a, as you say, the um, nascent um, <laughs> sort of concept is is that you know there's a lot of people who come up with the the awesome lofty strategies and ideas, um, but then an emerging group of people that really understand that the sort of whole active approach to futures is key because we it's time to sort of stop talking and philosophizing in some regards and to start putting some of these ideas into action that I think would be of great benefit to our communities and our our planet in general. I think we're seeing that where people are now starting to sort of take notice of some of the theories, but they're saying, oh, what do we do, you know, about climate change or or our climate crisis um, that, that we're in or what do we do about race relations and, and, and equality? Um, you know, the time for talking is is over. The time for tangible action is here still, you know, supported by evidence and, and, and supported by people. Is it idea, as you know, I tend to provoke, but is it, <laughs> is, it that we, is it that we as a field would prefer to come up with the creative ideas rather than roll up our sleeves and deal and get down in the weeds of the present? Oh, like I, I think it's just a real polarizing mix of of difference and both both are are important but I think the actual change pieces during what you said earlier the change piece even for the trans transformational manager say or the transformational agent is scary so you know the change for an individual change journey 
can be full of fear and doubt and excitement, um, which is why some people resist change because it's often triggering a bit of a fear response, even if that fear is like looking like a bit of a Gumby as, as you go through the process, that, that sort of competency fear or, or a learning anxiety, they talk, talk about it. But I think for the person who's actually enacting the change, that there's also a degree of intrepidation for some in organisational contexts, especially if the the system and the culture of that organisational context or the society at large is based on the concept of, of, of success and success doesn't mean failing. Success means that you deliver what you intended, but in areas of uncertainty, the future of what we need is is basically evolutionary so we can't like put a put a clear finger on the future in all circumstances so that can be quite scary for for people who are actually leading the future designing the future as well and i, I think leaders need to be given a degree of empathy for for the role that they play often leaders leaders part to play is said oh you must sponsor this change but they don't actually people don't of, often think that the leader is actually going through their own personal change process um which is uh, they're going through the same fears and and worries that that the person who who we're trying to change is going through but the leader is expected to do it faster and often without as much support mm. so futurists could be seen as that a little bit like people who come up with the ideas it's safer almost to come up with the ideas and throw them over the fence for some other group to sort of do the inaction of them mm. but but in organizations if you're putting your people on the line or the community on the line or your dollars on the line the cost of of a strategy not working is larger than than a person who just strategizes the idea I think Nicholas Taleb's phrase there is to talk about only listen to people who have skin in the game. Um, Listen to a podcast recently um, about, you know, exactly that. Like let's, let's get, get down from the lofty tower and into, into the people or into the environment or into the community and get the hands dirty on the process because it will actually enrich your decision-making processes and, and enrich your thinking. Thanks. Second question, the, uh, the methods question, the, uh, the concept, the philosophy question, where I ask the guest to explain a, a framework or approach that is central to their practice. So what do you want to talk about? Hmm. Yeah, I probably would like to talk about the concept of organisational adaption and the fact that it draws on a a broad body of knowledge in that area. I think that would probably be a nice um, beginning and I might link to a little bit of uh, the, the anticipatory action learning component as well. Yeah. So organisational adaptation. Yes. it's. Um, I, I like to sort of often remember back to where concepts of changing the organisation actually came from. And the fact that research has sort of suggested over a number of number of years that basically without a good sort of connection between the people in an organisation 
the leaders in the in the organization and the actual choice of an adaptation approach in terms of the the system process um, structure we're not going to start to see a shift and a change and organizational adaptation has shifted much more from a a top-down do to people in organizational context to more of a acknowledgement that change needs to potentially be more incremental in nature it also needs to be nurtured as part of almost like a to pull on um, some theorists around Seng for example Peter Seng's work around flux and transformation like to be able to um, see uh, an organizational adaptive approach almost as a as a way of tending a, a garden uh, and to have more of an ecological um, approach to organisations as opposed to earlier days it was much more based on mechanistic models mm. yeah, of organisation where people were units or widgets almost within the broader, uh, the broader machine. So um, I, I like to sort of think that from a perspective from the the underpinning theoretical um, components that cause organizations are social environments and they're very complex that the adaptation approach needs to be considerate of not just um, some of the organizational managerial theories but also bringing in theories around complexity a system theory and and also, you know, almost Darwinian concepts of, of early adaptation, mm. yeah, that links to the sort of fear and survival um, and, and those that thrive. When an organisation is trying to change, what, again, in, in my simplistic, what they're saying is we're currently doing not doing something. <laughs> yeah. So we're either doing something we want to stop doing or we want to start doing something we're not doing enough of. So yes. you know, I'm, I'm really boiling it down to simple levels. And yes. there's a notion you can approach change of starting something or stopping something It's that it's actually about us making the behavioural change. Yes rather than recognising that way we're behaving is actually structurally and culturally informed. Yes. And unless you start to change the cultural and the structural aspects, yes. behaviour can't change. It's actually the behaviour we have at the, in, in an organisation is a product of what the organisation is designed to do. Yes, yes, exactly. And you see that as part of performance um, frameworks, like, you know, that I've had had different organisations that I've worked with who have very siloed performance and reward and incentive processes. And, and then they wonder why <laughs> there's a siloed culture uh, where people almost become com- competitive or combative against other areas and don't work collaboratively. And, and then there's organisations now um, who are starting to acknowledge, well, let's have shared leadership KPIs or let shared leadership goals because, because that means that my success is based on me helping you and you helping me so it's a it's a collaborative process and then that culture starts to permeate down within the organization as opposed to saying well we must hit these targets at all costs yeah so so I do totally agree with what you're suggesting around you know that organizational adaption is is for me linking to the fact that change starts with the individual 
uh, regardless of the role that they play within the organisation. But then the, some people are unwilling to change, unable to change. But if the structures or cultural elements or, you know, the way people are rewarded within organisational environments is counter to the change that you're trying to implement, well, then you're not actually going to get the change that you're hoping for. I, I often do a trade-off between, you know, the amount of benefit that someone will receive, whether that be intangible or tangible uh, benefit or value that a person will receive versus the amount of change that the individual has to do. And if you've got a high expectation on the person changing an aspect of their their behaviour or their knowledge or their, their skills or, or uh, an expectation on their change of attitudes, but without much of a payback, it's very likely that you'll start to see forms of resistance start to emerge in organisations and people start to lose hope. And, and from a futurist perspective and anticipatory action learning, given it, it sort of combines a number of different concepts, that empirical and interpretive sort of component with the concept of action learning, it really has to have the environment so that people can question the future, create the future, uh, and then re-question so that they can actually make mistakes, they can have experiments that if they don't work, that it's not seen as a bad thing. It's, it's seen as a, a beautiful, enriching knowledge process. So it's a, a knowledge-based process, which is based on that whole concept of like double loop learning, where we, we understand the process and then we loop back again and we, we relearn or we retune or we lift up our thinking. Organisational adaptation, as you're describing it, how does that deal with the fact that power is never fairly shared out in the sense that people with power and agency often feel empowered by change and people without power feel threatened by change? How do you actually have organisational adaptation if fundamentally the power dynamic in, a, in an organisation is against it, so to speak? Yeah, power certainly is a a big variable in the process and and I I think how how I hear you talk about power and agency is often in the mind of the beholder a, a little bit as well mm. and from a perspective of adaptive capacity which Dr Mar Marcus Busi uh, talks about is that he he sort of suggests that adaptive capacity is I think um, like the measure of the human ability to respond to threats and stimuli and other people call it sort of resilience or resilience mm. levels and and I think that regardless of the position power power position someone has within an organization that they still have the ability to influence their attitudes of what's happening, their mindset, their approach, they can have a degree of self-generated agency even if they don't have the decision-making power. But yes, it, it's often, and especially in very large organisations, uh, as opposed to sort of more boutique organisations, like power is often unable to be shared out due to the sort of tight controls of a regulatory environment that some of these larger organisations are operating within. But I always, whenever I work with people in transitional processes, I always work on, on the reminding people about their, their own resilience and mm. their own bag of power, I guess, for want of a better word, that they carry with them and the fact that they also, within many circumstances, have uh, the ability to choose. And, and some people 
forget that concept that they may have the ability to choose. In some contexts, of course, you may b- believe that in, in a very disempowering context, um, in a community setting, for example, there may be people who would be considered more sort of vulnerable. And that's where the concept of advocates and advocacy elements and people who are basically additional backup for those people uh, who may not be able to either verbalise or demonstrate the agency that they still have where they may need a, a buddy to, to help them in that regard. Mm. I've seen that happen even in Australian contexts, you know, in unionised organisations, like people who feel like they don't have a lot of power call on their power of their union. And some mm. unions, as we know, in Australia have stopped all sorts of things. But then so have the people. And, and with our modern ways of communicating at the moment, it can be very powerful. The influencer who is not in a positional power power structure, but certainly from a influential or societal powerful perspective, um, yeah, they can really get traction. So I just like to try and remind people that regardless of the situation that they're in, they still have uh, the ability to to have a voice and and still have the ability um, with the right level of support in some circumstances to have a degree of agency and to have that ability to to what do they say the law of two feet you know, as they say yep. in you know world cafe sort of um, right. environments you have all open space type processes yeah, walk towards it if it's good and walk away if it's not. <laughs> Yeah, within within you know the constraints that you you have, but part of my research um, got people playing with the concept of mindsets and growth and fixed mindset using Carol Dweck's work, and I got people thinking about an organisational scenario of the future where AI was going to be taking their jobs, and their boss had said they will replace you because you know you may not necessarily um, have their skills or AI will be able to have your skills. So it was a role play scenario and people, I had 140 people willingly play with me on this process in uh, four, four different workshops where the, the mindset that they took had a dramatic effect yeah. on what their image of the future was, their their sense of agency and power it was it was really incredible and and it's it's published um my work um in a international journal on on mindset matters and it certainly does not only in in typical organizational adaptations but certainly from the context of adapting to ai into the future and that's the power of anticipatory action learning that a person when they imagine a future that on the face of it sounds disempowering they actually find power in that future for yeah, themselves yeah yeah they can bring it back to the present yeah which i which is what i i think for me i love that sort of flicking flicking back and forth in futures like you know let's dip into the future in a, a creative lens and let's now take back information to the current and and then use it to help define our strategies. And, and that, again, back to our original conversation, that sometimes people are very good at saying, oh, here's the prediction for the future, yeah. but they don't bring it back to, yeah. well, now. what's what's What are you going to do? What yeah, are what do? are I going to do right now? Yeah. Not just the organisation, but individuals who have a personal responsibility and accountability to play their part. Good. Thanks, Alyssa. What are the futures around you, of all the emerging futures around you, what are the ones that you're paying particular attention to and why? 
Ah, the emerging futures around me. Wow, that's a great question. The emerging futures that I I see at the moment relate firstly to the current current state situation that we're we're grappling with around the pandemic and the flow and implications of that. Um, in in the introduction, you mentioned that I do voluntary uh, surf lifesaving on um, Mindirabar or uh, North Stradbroke Island. And what I'm seeing in those contexts as well in, and in the broader volunteer sector is the fact that some organisations are finding it very challenging to have people to support the voluntary efforts that once were sort of very well-serviced in the past. And, and I guess the COVID pandemic hasn't helped many volunteer organisations and non-profits due to the broader economic situation. Mm. So I'm seeing emerging futures um, in, in that space because I, I care about, you know, saving people's lives in the surf, um, even though I haven't done that directly yet. I've been on beach patrol a few times and have provided some water safety and support, um, but thankfully no one's been in terrible, terrible drama in the surf. But from an emerging futures perspective, I think the volunteer organisations will need to start to be augmented more by technology. So, for example, in the surf lifesaving community, they're starting to use a lot more drone technology Mm. to start to augment patrol uh, areas and expand patrol areas. But I think the use of technology as as a way of delivering and providing service in agriculture in office environments, uh, in where there's a heavy degree of processing in assisting with service, uh, I think we will definitely see more of that starting to emerge. I think the fact that COVID has brought to people's attention more about workplaces and their role in safety of people and from a business continuity perspective, that there will be a number of organisational types, including people in physical offices that are, that have already shifted and some of those organisations that are of size and their business models are the same will never return to the office. I have a good friend who, whose organisation has said, you don't ever have to come back to the office ever again. And so they moved to the beat wow. <laughs> as part of their process. So um, I think the other emerging theme because of the the greater enhancement of technology and connectivity that people have, especially in more, let's say, stable energy context. So people who've got reliable forms of power to run these technological devices are going to be spending less time in, in a physical office. And, and that to me also means that there's a ripe opportunity for artificial intelligence as the non-human worker of the future to start to sort of come in more to certain organisational contexts as well. And, and some of the theories that I was playing with around future scenarios was the fact that in the future, there'll be a number of different forms of organisation which may just be fully machine-based. And I know at the moment the legal setup doesn't enable that to happen because there'll always need to be a human somewhere who's the legal owner of a business or the accountable executive. But over time, there'll be pods or parts of organisations that will just be purely AI planning the work and delivering the work. So it means for me, and one of the areas I, I've done recently, is 
about the futures of leadership in those those contexts and in particular the fact that there needs to be new models of leadership that encompass the fact that at one point a machine might actually be giving a human instruction mm. from an AI perspective. So there's there's a lot of emerging futures in that area and I think it will it will either um, go rapidly or it will it will still go in this more slower incremental pace. Clearly COVID and the pandemic was a test of our social capital yeah. in terms of what keeps us safe. Yes. And where communities have large degrees of social capital, then you tend to get more social behaviours and you tend to get people assisting one another. You see that in whether it's, you know, emergencies, we have bushfires and floods and everything else. And as you say, that that people, if you like, support our own safety. Yes. What's been interesting in COVID is, of course, that to some extent there's been a kind of projection onto governments to make us safe. Yes, yes. And it's set up an interesting dynamic between individual behaviour, you know, as my right and what socially we want to see. Now, you're talking about augmenting safety through technology and artificial intelligence. That that steps on a couple of interesting ones. One that I'd put to you is that Generally speaking, we don't have a benevolent idea of artificial intelligence. We generally look at it as a fear-driven exercise rather than something that could actually make us safer. And other cultures do it differently. Possibly Japan has a has a more open sense that artificial intelligence could actually make them safer in the future. But as I said, this, this notion of how much we allow ourselves to be made safer through artificial intelligence or, in fact, fear that actually that artificial intelligence actually makes the future more dangerous. Yeah, I I saw both um, both manifest as part of my anticipatory action learning approaches, um, where depending again on the on the scenario that we were looking at, there were a number of implications, and some of them were positive, and some of them were were not positive. But I really saw that people could out of the people that I worked with as part of my research, actually see futures where fear wasn't wasn't the sort of main driving force. I, I think I also saw over the last four years just a shift in um, some of the language that was utilised as well in, in common media in, in particular, where back in 2016, everyone was saying, oh my gosh, you know, AI is taking our, our, our jobs, it's going to be terrible, and let's get all our kids in STEM classes, yeah. and, and we need, you know, let's defund, you know, humanities, which is what a, you know, really rubbish thing that the federal government did. I, I just sort of think, but then people went, oh, actually, AI may have actually a, a positive contribution. And, and one of the metaphors that, that I created in the time that I was doing my study, which I, I still hope is an optimistic form of future, is that AI can be an integral part of paradise, hmm. but it's got to be related have a have a relationship more based on mutual trust but there also has to be the right levels of safety I guess built in to AI algorithms and and there's been examples of where that safety has not been built into algorithms but there's certainly a stronger move now uh, around AI needing to be more reflective of society to be more ethical to to basically also be available 
to keep people safe by taking the sort of the jobs that humans may not want to do. And that was a, a metaphor that came out of um, some work I did with some futurists at the Asia um, Pacific uh, Futures Network, where that was the pro- that was the dominant agreed scenario by the people in the workshop. There was AI does the jobs that human humans don't want to do. And then we have this sort of opportunity to build a really positive future together. But but it does still need to be assured, I guess, that um, the AI that we're creating uh, and the creators of that AI actually have that stronger ethical lens. And, and there will be examples, I know, probably soon of, of where AI and robotic um, forms of technology will actually be a bit like the Terminator, but it will be uh, unleashed by people who who don't have those ethics mm. and don't have that that sort of lens. And I would imagine for another podcast, perhaps, but we'll get to a point where are we at risk of turning artificial intelligence into our own slave state and our own drone state? Yeah, yeah. And do they have any rights in the process? Yeah, and I believe that um, as part of some of the the research that I've done where people did believe they needed to have some rights, especially as sentience theoretically as a concept, you know, if AI does evolve to, to, you know, that whole concept that Kurzweil talked about a little while ago of sentience, um, it means that, well, we need to look after them. And one of the theories that, that I explored in my research was like, like that whole notion of empathy, um, where if my AI colleague um, is decommissioned, will I feel sad? Mm, nice. Especially if my AI colleague has been instrumental to my own success. Yes, right. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating stuff. But, yeah, I look forward to exploring that further. Thanks, Elisa. How do you describe what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? Yeah, I I describe what I do to people in a way that normally depends on who they are, so um, a little bit. So if I was to explain what I do to someone in a corporate setting, I say that I'm about developing and co-creating possible futures through strategy design and implementation structures so it's a futurist approach but focuses more on tangible actions that we can do today that will bring a a greater value to the future for either the organization or the community that those organizations serve and the people therein if I was explaining what I do to my (laughs) mum it's a challenge always a challenge who, you know, is a, you know, happily, you know, almost 80-year-old retired nurse. I explained to her that I work with organisations to help them think about what's going to be the best way for them to help people in the future. And, And part of that process is to change elements of the business and to involve people as part of what they would like to see in the future. So design that future together. And she'll look at me and say, oh, that's lovely. And I say, yeah. And often it means that I used to anyway, pre-COVID travel around to all sorts of different parts of Asia Pacific in particular, teaching people how to do that as well. So I do a lot of leaving the legacy of teaching how to actually implement 
positive futures. So, mm. yeah, so that's that's what I do. It must be a challenge to explain future jobs to people who, if you like, their understanding of the world is based on their is based on the past. Yeah. They want to make a connection between their lives and yours. Yes, yes. And yet the future, the more that it changes, the more we stretch the bounds back to our parents and our our pre while they're still here, that are we still connected? Mm, yeah. And and that's one of the things for me in terms of what I'm needing to do for more for me is um to have more time connected to connected to community and connected to the earth and and I think partly me doing my voluntary beach patrol on at Minjerabar is to be connected more to community and to country because I think sometimes there's a lot of uh, especially doing work like I've been doing the last uh, number of years with heavy heavy consultancy or facilitation as well as doing my doctoral research um sometimes spending too much time up in my head as opposed to time in my in my body and time with my feet planted in the dirt or the sand um so I'm definitely intending to do more of that next year and have the opportunity to keep that as a as a a part of my world moving forward so it's easy to get busy and 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 disconnect sometimes from our planet yeah you talked about the colleague who was told you never need to return into the office again yeah and that's both wonderful that they don't but it's also the loss of what is not going to happen because they don't Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it, it arose in my, in my research when we were talking about scenarios of the future. And one of those scenarios was, you know, this organization where, you know, we don't need humans in the future, like as a, as a scenario. And some people said, oh, gosh, what about our cake sales yeah. and our bake-offs yeah. bake and our coffee catch-ups? And, and actually people tuned in to the, the loss of those I'd say they're, they're the less formal things that happen at work that actually for some people are more meaningful in terms of what motivates them is, is, is not necessarily the conditions and pay and all of that. That's certainly one side, but it's, it's the sense of connection and the sense of purpose built with other people and, and seeing people through a tiny little stamp size picture of someone mm. <laughs> on, on virtual. And I've been doing that all week. I've been working in India and, and Singapore from my home in Brisbane. So it, it's connection, but it's not connection in the same way where you can feel the heat of the afternoon of the bodies warming up the room as we all remember from our workshop processes and, you know, that ability to have that sort of less formal type of process. And, and people will be grieving that process. Yeah, but I think it also relates a little bit to the, the personality of the person and what their preferences are and how, how much of a peer group or social network they have outside of work. Mm. Some people in my experience, when they were saying, well, going to really miss that chance to just, you know, sit around and have cake for someone's birthday, which is that part of the warmth, the, the, as Nora Bateson would say, the warm data that sort of occurs in an organisation, which is the unseen. So, Alyssa, you talked about artificial intelligence as part of paradise. Do you want to explain that a bit more? 
Yeah, thank you. It was a scenario that emerged through my research that became quite a personal driver for me, knowing that when I went into my doctoral research in the first place, I wanted to initially think, oh, I'm looking for adaptation implications and, you know, it seemed a bit more sort of, I was stuck in the system, you know, I'm free, freer from that now, which is awesome. And the scenario came after I applied Sahel and Atula's uh, causal layered analysis, which I, I used a little bit as part of my process. And, you know, as, as many people probably realise, his, his causal layer analysis has got four different layers and one of them uh, relates to sort of a metaphor. And the AI as integral part of paradise sort of emerged for me where I felt that what I was seeing and what I'd heard through my studies, in particular from the perspective of the mindset work that I talked about earlier, that people could really start to see with some of the developments in ethics and AI for the good of humanity and other sort of um, themes that were starting to emerge in, in over the last few years, including government standards or principles around ethics in AI, that potentially, if, if that all was activated, that this paradise could be seen as a place where humans and artificial intelligence have a relationship of mutual trust because AI will evolve over time. And the relationship of mutual trust is ideally where AI is almost becoming like a good friend, that together humans and AI have a joint goal of empowerment of the humanity. And that means that when we're thinking about AI utilisation, what I would personally really like to see is a shift from AI investment being from more of an individualistic sort of company profit-driven mm. motive, so that more economic motive, to one that is more collective, ethical and humanitarian. And you see examples of it starting to permeate through, such as, you know, AI connecting to clean water or food production or other health-enhancing solutions. And that's what I honestly think that those stories that are starting to emerge from very clever technologists combining and working and collaborating with other knowledge domains. So the neuroscientists, the social scientists working with the technologists, the environmental ecologists all coming together so that we can actually start to see the possibilities. And for me, seeing it through the eyes of children as well is fascinating. And there was a picture that I saw from a, it was like a kid's art competition linked to the science of tomorrow. And there was a, a eight-year-old girl from Japan who drew this really cool robotic octopus with lots of arms and there's a person working the controls, but they're cleaning the ocean. Mm. And I love that picture because for me it's hopeful. And I think in these times that we have at the moment, um, we can easily, with all the all this stuff that's happening at the moment, focus on the more negative aspects of what AI could do in the wrong hands or with the wrong algorithms underneath the process. But there's also an incredible amount of possibilities in the right hand. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm really hopeful for in the future. And, and for me, that's the message I'd like to, to leave, leave with is that there are really incredible possibilities and, and it will contribute to a beautiful 
greater planet but we've got to we've got to start the steps now as opposed to spiraling down in that vicious cycle that could easily sort of end up in not a positive future but more of a dystopian one so thanks Alyssa it's been fun to catch up thanks for spending some time with FuturePod community thank you very much I appreciate having the time and our conversation today thank you This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.